I kept saying to myself, what do you want, motherhood or pregnancy? And the answer was always motherhood. I was willing to sacrifice nine months of pregnancy for a lifetime of motherhood. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, lighthearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's episode of the Fitness Fertility Podcast, I am delighted to welcome Karina Duman to the show. Karina was diagnosed with breast cancer and then infertility at 33 years old. Her cancer treatment led to heart failure at the age of just 36, three years after treatment began. Before starting treatment, Karina and her husband went through urgent IVF in an attempt to freeze as many embryos as they could. And then when they were ready, they decided that surrogacy was their best pathway to parenthood. They now have four children, their eldest daughter, Amala, and triplet boys. From this experience, Karina's blog was born with each entry addressed lovingly to Amala. She has also joined forces with Frances Simmons, and together they are founders of The Intended Parent, a platform designed to give you information, support and advice to navigate your surrogacy journey. They also have an award-winning podcast by the same name, The Intended Parent. Karina is also the founder of Karina Diman Changing Conversations, an organisation established to change outdated narratives when it comes to breast cancer, infertility awareness and cultural conditioning. Karina is also a fertility ambassador for The Fertility Show and it was an absolute pleasure meeting Karina at the show this year. Karina, welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. Hello, hello, how are we? We are very good. Thank you so much for joining us. I think we could say that your 30s were perhaps not what anyone would ever plan for, <laughs> let alone expect. Definitely wasn't in the five-year plan, any of that. Not in the five-year plan, not what you get taught at school. You experienced breast cancer, heart failure and infertility. I wondered if, did the seriousness of the infertility diagnosis really register with you at the time? Yeah. You know, now when I look back, I just think, how on earth did I get through it? The enormity of my early 30s was just immense, you know, and the amount of life-changing things that happened in the space of three years was, it was astronomical. And I do quite often talk about cancer and infertility and, you know, how brutal that space is. And I hadn't struggled with fertility until I was diagnosed with cancer. So, the whole IVF concept was so alien to me. And, you know, in some ways it was a blessing and in some ways it was a curse because I think the blessing was that because I hadn't researched it or I hadn't been a part of infertility and I hadn't struggled with infertility, I didn't have the years and years of heartbreak and trauma that so many of us do have. What I did sort of feel was that I was really unprepared. The lines from my oncologist were that his job was to save my life, not to create a new life. I remember those words and, you know, out of everything I've heard in oncology rooms for the the decade that followed, those are the words that will never leave me because it was true. It was heartbreakingly true. He had to save my life. But for me, the question was, if you save my life, what's the quality of life after that if I don't have children? 
The sad thing is, many of us are finding ourselves in that room with cancer occurrences being so much more prevalent. I definitely see a lot of young women being diagnosed with cancer before they've had the opportunity to start a family. And when you're in the oncologist's room, yes, their job is definitely to save your life. But you know, I really am advocating and pushing for fertility specialists in that space as well, because whilst I acknowledge that an oncologist's job is to save your life, this is a part of a whole package of care. And if our people being offered fertility preservation, or even now as a mum of a blended family, I have children who were donor egg conceived and my own egg conceived, you know, no one had the conversation with me on, is there another way of you becoming a mum if we don't freeze your eggs? To put it into context, I had an estrogen, a fully estrogen and progesterone sensitive cancer. My cancer was fully hormonal and it was feeding off my hormones. To go into IVF, it's dangerous, you know. You know that the hormones you're going to pump into your body are the very hormones that are feeding your tumour. But there was no counselling or no conversations around, OK, Queen, that, that is a risk that your cancer will grow as you go through IVF. But no one actually said... These are all the other options to parenthood. It's literally like conventionally do it yourself with IVF assisted or adopt. In hindsight, I just don't I don't really know how we got through it. I feel like the IVF and the infertility was very much a byproduct of cancer being the main event. And I was on a train. I talk about it all the time. I'm just on a train and it's the cancer train and it makes multiple stops. And one of the stops happened to be fertility treatment. And, you know, you get on that train and you stop and you do you have a surgery and you have your breast removed and then you get told, oh, this is your treatment plan. You get to the next stop and something changes and your treatment plan changes. Then you get to the next stop and someone says, oh, by the way, you might be left infertile and you do what you have to do to deal with that. And then you get to chemotherapy and then you just deal with it. And in a way, I think because I was so uninformed about cancer as well as infertility, I mean, I had no clue what was going on. The naivety maybe protected me a little bit. But it also meant I was immensely underprepared. That meant that it was a very difficult path to tread. I find dealing with infertility alone hard enough. And I just can't imagine being in my 30s, you know, doing my 30s thing, dating, getting married, that type of thing, completely normal one day. And then the next day, I think you said you found out, was it a lump in your breast and the inverted nipple? And was it your husband that encouraged you to go to the GP? And then your GP kind of tried to turn you away. Is that right? It was. I didn't have a lump. I had an inverted nipple. And I didn't know what the signs of breast cancer were at all, despite it. My grandmother had had it twice. Part of uh, important conversations that I have are being a South Asian in this space, because culturally don't talk about ill health. We feel that we have to wear this coat of armour. And because of that, we find it difficult to be vulnerable. So I didn't know. No one had told me. So I didn't know what the symptoms were. My left nipple became inverted. I literally thought I'd worn a bra that was too tight. That was how naive I was. And then after a while, yeah, my husband said to me, look, maybe go to the doctor. That doesn't look normal. As soon as he said it, I was like, yeah, maybe that's not normal. And I started Googling it. And then Literally, my stomach fell through the floor as soon as I put my symptoms into Google. But then I tried to get a doctor's appointment quite quickly and was told that it was nothing to worry about. And I probably had a blocked milk duct because I was 33 and hadn't had children. And fortunately, by that time, I was really afraid. I said, I'm not leaving the room unless I get a referral. Then she wanted me to wait two months and let's see if it settles. No one will ever know, but I, I feel in my heart of hearts, if I'd waited two months, there's every chance I wouldn't be standing here because my cancer was that aggressive. I was diagnosed with stage three cancer, but had quite a lot of lymph nodes involved. 
stage three, it's still a curable cancer. As soon as it gets to stage four, it's incurable. It was really tough to go through a cancer diagnosis, but then to go through infertility alongside it. I had 14 days to get through IVF, preserve the embryos and get into a chemo chair. It's just immense. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. They refer to it as urgent IVF. Is that the right terminology? I think that it can be called whatever your team call it, you know, fertility preservation, urgent treatment, whatever it is. But it's basically a case of person needs to start chemo pretty quickly. How can we get her cycle in sync to get as many eggs harvested and embryos created as possible? And for me, it was bizarrely fortunate that the day I saw my oncology was like the 10th of October. The next day was my birthday, the 11th of October, and my period arrived. And that was my happy birthday, Karina, like you were starting IVF within 14 days. I'd, you know, been through the process and, you know, preserved the embryos and popped them on ice. And then, you know, within three weeks, I was starting chemo. Oh, my goodness. I mean, like you say, most people have quite often months, if not years, to prepare for IVF. You know, they train with me, they do the nutrition, they do the reflexology, they do everything. And you were just straight in, in and out, basically, in that 14-day period. So after you, you've had fertility preservation, you knew it was always part of the deal that you would then be starting chemo for your breast cancer. And I heard you say that you lost spirit when you were going through chemo. And this next bit actually made me really emotional that you were thinking, I've just made babies and I'm never going to live to see them. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, I think I was fully aware that the drugs I was on were potentially going to aggravate a cancer. So it was very much for me, the IVF process just had to be done. There was no chance to connect to the process because mentally I didn't have the headspace to do it. And then there was no chance to connect to the embryos or feel they were, they were born from love because they weren't. They were born from necessity. And I had a real fear that, if I was doing this and I created this embryo, but then I caused myself to be even more sick, like how did I feel about my my choices and how would I feel about those embryos? Like, did they make me sick? And it was really complicated. And so I didn't connect with them. And I also had this really frustrating situation go on where you're diagnosed with cancer, then you're told you need to go have IVF. You know that you're employment situation is going to be turned upside down and you don't know where your money's going to come from in terms of jobs. And I was hoping that I'd get funded for my IVF because I lived in a funded postcode. So as soon as my referral went in, I said to my GP, can you put in a funding request for this IVF treatment? Because, you know, I didn't have loads of money. And she immediately said, you know, she did it and then called me back like literally a day or two later and just said, oh, your funding's been rejected. And I was, what's happening here? And basically I got rejected despite living in a funded postcode. I got rejected because I didn't meet the criteria of having tried to conceive for two to three years before looking to get fertility treatment. And I was a bit like, you can do the IVF. There'll be nothing for you to do because my ovaries would be damaged from the chemotherapy. And then I was angry because when we were having to get credit cards out to pay for bills, I was just categorically told that I won't be funded. And so I went off and did my homework and found on the NICE guidelines that actually there's a separate protocol for people who are going to potentially lose fertility through chemotherapy and they should be funded. At this point, I've had one breast removed. I'm looking at chemo coming up. I'm about to start IVF treatment. And now I've had to fight a funding battle. And I had to go to sort of my CCG. I had to go to my MP. I went back to my GP to get an appeal put in place. And I just said, look, these are the nice guidelines. And so my GP was like, well, the appeal is not going to be successful. There's no point in putting it through. And I was a bit like, 
what's the point of an appeal process if you've already made a decision? So I wasn't kind of going to let that pass and I ended up finding two or three people who sit on the CCG, wrote to them about my story and told them how it just didn't make any sense what they were saying. And they just said, that well, we've got to take it away. It doesn't fit protocol and we wouldn't normally fund blah, blah, blah. And I went through the whole of my sort of medicated cycle and I got an email on the day of my collection to say they'll fund. <gasps> But we went through all of that and I just was like, why is there another battle here? You know, as if there isn't enough going on that now we're going to fight about money. And it was just ridiculous because I knew if I waited another two years, they would fund me. But the outcome would be probably really poor. And, you know, as patients, we just have to really self-advocate. Yeah, It was messy and therefore the connection to my embryos was, was really not there because I was just sort of clinging on by my fingernails at this point and... And I was so uninformed at that point. I didn't even know what day my embryos were frozen at until we tried to use them that I realised they were day ones. And there was I didn't even know there was a thing like day one, day five, day three. You know, I didn't know what a blast assist was. I didn't know what any of that was when we eventually tried to conceive with these embryos. And, I, you know, my fertility clinic said, oh, we have to grow them to day five and you'll probably lose X percent. Oh, well, I was under the impression I had like 12 or 13 brilliant embryos. And they said, oh, well, when it's cancer related infertility, they freeze at day one and give you a high number. So you're actually very hopeful about what the future holds. I did not know that. I guess there was a good thing because I did think we had a really good number of embryos. Maybe we did. You know, when it came to it, we only managed to get the one that turned into my baby girl. Now I look back and I'm like, I actually was really uninformed about what was going on with my own treatment. The process you went through, it's really messy because there's so many people involved. I'm imagining like a Venn diagram. You know, you've got like fertility here, you've got cancer here, you've got cardiology here. And to be honest with you, I just assumed naively that when going through this process, all the different departments would talk to each other. But it sounds like from what you're saying, they were really separate. It was not a Venn diagram. They were separate circles. <laughs> they were not together. Mm. What is lacking is just one point of contact that you could come back to or like one very compassionate nurse who can support you through everything. You have your Macmillan nurse or your cancer nurse, but then you'd also have a separate fertility nurse and they don't talk to each other. And it's just a lot of different people to manage. And for anyone who's going through cancer and infertility at the same time, your, your brain's scrambled egg. I know it's not funny, but I quite like the analogy. But I get it. Yeah, it's just a lot. Sorry to interrupt. But do you know that I offer a two-week free trial on all my training plans? This means you have access to my fertility-focused training plans, meal plans, and accountability calls for the duration of your trial. For more information and to sign up to start your free trial, get in touch at info at fitnessfertility.com. And now, back to the show. So you proceeded with your chemo, you'd had the IVF. You moved on to radiotherapy. And again, I didn't realise how brutal radiotherapy was, but you, you describe it leaving you with blisters and burns. Again, sounds awful. You knew you would then be in treatment basically for 10 years. You obviously had these embryos on ice. Could you just talk us through the discussions you and your husband had? And ultimately, how did you end up deciding upon surrogacy? At that point, I was seeing my oncologist. So once I finished treatment, I was still seeing him every three months, then every six months. Every time I went in, I would be like, what are the statistics if I want to come off medication? And every time he'd say, you've got to wait, you know, you've got to wait until at least year five. If I waited five years, I was going to be 38 or 39. And I was like, can I wait that long to be a mom? And, you know, do I want to go earlier? And what would that look like if I don't want to wait until then? 
Um, and also, if I'm honest, my own mortality played a huge role in this. So I was like, if I break medication and I get pregnant and then my cancer comes back, and that becomes a stage four cancer. How do we feel as a family at that point, you know, and how do we feel towards the life we've created? And would I resent that child? Because actually in bringing that child to life, I paid the price of my own life. These are conversations I had really in my own head. Before I said them to anyone, I was like, right, Karina, how are you going to feel? I think throughout my treatment and the older I'd got, the more sort of spiritual I'd become and the more connected to myself I'd become. And I was able to look at situations a bit more pragmatically and I kept saying to myself, what do you want, motherhood or pregnancy? And and the answer was always motherhood. I was willing to sacrifice nine months of pregnancy for a lifetime of motherhood. So I think I decided on surrogacy before anyone else decided on surrogacy because of that and because of the statistics my oncologist kept throwing at me. Every time I went to his room, he would say, "Okay, give me five minutes and I'll go and get the stats. And the risk of recurrence was high if I came off my drugs. And so so I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And then once I'd made my decision, I sort of said to my husband, like, this is the only way I can see us becoming parents. You know, we've got the embryos. If someone else carries for us, we can still become parents. But he very much wasn't on, he wasn't on the page at that point in time. He was a bit like, bury his head in the sand, think that it's all going to be fine. And he, some other miracle way of becoming a parent would, would deliver itself to us. But I think I always knew that it wasn't going to happen. The problem we had is I'd never seen an Indian girl become a mum in this way. I I still haven't seen an Indian girl go through what I've been through. So the stories of hope were very sparse for us. And therefore, it was easier for him to believe like the hearsay and, you know, that oh surrogacy is going to go wrong. And, you know, you can't afford surrogacy and, you know, she'll keep your baby and all of those things that the fears that we have, which actually now I know are very unlikely to happen but at that point when you have no experience and no one to guide you they're very real fears so actually I would say for the first year of my decision to go through surrogacy he wasn't on the same page I remember just talking to one of my very good friends and she just goes well to me when you've got time what you'll need to do in that time is get yourself fully informed so that he comes along for the ride and that's what I did I spent the next year I think researching laws, looking for people who'd done this, looking at all our options, like internationally, at home, all the different types of surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, altruistic surrogacy, you know, gestational surrogacy, traditional, just did so much homework. And then I sort of eventually just said to him, like, you know, now you know, this is the only way, you know, once we'd come out of the real storm of cancer, I was like, you know, we want to become parents. We've, we've been gifted life. And then I took him to sort of some surrogacy conferences and we both realised that actually that was not the world for us, like agency-based surrogacy. just We stuck out like sore thumbs. We'd gone to a couple of meetups and again, we were the only people of colour in the room. And I had a real fear that a white surrogate wouldn't carry a brown baby. Mm. You know, that sounds ridiculous probably to a white person. They'll be like, oh, I know that's a stupid thing to be afraid of. But actually, when you come from a minority community, you have these fears and apprehensions because of the society we've all grown up in and lived in. Like, you know, obviously we today we live in we live in a world where racism isn't as outward as it was in the eighties when I was growing up and people were shouting horrid things at you in the street. But I grew up in that. We were really targeted for the colour of our skin as I grew up. And so that conditioning stays with you. The fear is the fear and it definitely manifested at that point I was like, no one's gonna carry a brown baby. And mm. once we decided on independent surrogacy, I remember going through the forums and scrolling 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 just looking for a surrogate who was a person of color and not finding one um 
and thinking that that was it, our, our chances were automatically reduced. Yeah. I remember, even though it didn't feel right, I'd written a check out to sign up to an agency because I was like, well, I'm going to have to just, you know, put my emotions aside. I need to just get through this. And then a girl from a breast cancer forum that I'd been part of and I'd posted on there about how I thought I'd made these embryos and I'm never going to be a mum to them. She just said to me, have you tried independent surrogacy? You just use Facebook and, you know, see if you get to know someone. As weird as it sounds, it wasn't that weird to me because I'd already had a cancer community on private Facebook groups. So I know how powerful these groups can be and the relationships you can form in them. So it made it easier for me to then jump into online Facebook-based surrogacy forums in the independent space. Once I joined, there's no looking back. I am really glad that you explained the worries you had because one of the questions I was going to ask you, what were your genuine fears about surrogacy? And yeah, as a white woman, I had not anticipated what you were going to say about skin colour. And I'm being completely honest with that because you're absolutely right, because it isn't something I've experienced. The Facebook thing, when I first heard about that, it blew my mind. In my head, it's more like a kind of more corporate one and then a more you meet people in a group. Is that kind of the difference between them? There are different agencies out there. Some will bring you into their own chat rooms and forums and you find your own match and they'll do some sort of vetting of everyone who's in their community beforehand to make sure it's a safe space, but it's very much up to you to still find your match. Some will bring you into their space and then if you want a matching service, you pay a premium and then they'll they'll help you find a match from their own pool of surrogates that they might have on their books. And some will hold your hand through the entire process and you pay a different fee based on the level of service. Don't quote me because I don't know the latest sort of figures, but I think the sort of the cheapest is about two grand to join and the most expensive is like 20 grand. There's a broad spectrum and that's reflective of the level of support you get through your journey. The one thing I realised at the fertility show when I was talking and I was explaining this to people is that there are a few different ways you could do this. Do independent surrogacy which means you don't join one of these agencies. The emphasis is on you to find your match. You go into chat rooms and you read introductory posts from other people. You sort of put yourself out there. It's a bit like dating. That's the, that's the only thing I can say it's like. You're not talking to people thinking you're the one who's going to be my surrogate. You're talking to people so they get to know who you are as an individual. And if they like who you are as an individual, or if they think you resonate with them, then hopefully conversation flows and you form a match. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's it's a long investment. And that's the thing, if you are doing it independently, you do have to be willing to put the time in. The rewards of independent surrogacy are reflective of the effort you put in. You've got three options. And if you're doing it on your own, you've got an A to Z and it's a paper A to Z and you will get there. You'll just have to read the pages and you'll have to make sure you go in the right directions and accept that you're going to make a few U-turns and jump on the wrong road and find your way back. Or you can go through one of the top end agencies where you literally just call an Uber and let them drive you all the way. And then, then, you know, that's going to cost you a lot more than the paper A to Z. And then I guess what we try to offer through the intended parent is like a middle ground. And that for me is a bit like where you get in your own car, you put Google Maps or Waze on and they take you there. So you're not on your own. You've got someone guiding you every step of the way to whatever the fastest and best route is for you to get there. But you're still going to have to drive the car on your own. And you're still going to have to pay for the fuel in your car. So it's more expensive than an A to Z, but it's cheaper than an Uber. That's what I wished I'd had when I went through it. Because, you know, we did the indie stuff on our own and it was really complex. And there was so much to so much to get our heads around, especially sort of with the nuances and the law and stuff. And it was it was a lot. And I think Fran, who's my co-host and myself, we both sort of became mums and we were both, God, I wish there was something out there. So we decided to put the podcast together and pay it forward. 
it's been such a journey. Yeah. I met my first match through independent surrogacy. You know, I kissed a few frogs before I found my princess charming. When I met Ina, I just knew. I just knew that she was the one. You know, we had so much in common. We were aligned in so many ways. I'm very grateful that she crossed my path. And actually, weirdly, she came into my life when I was almost dying from acute heart failure. It was absolutely bonkers. So in the years after my cancer diagnosis, the irony, Satya and I took a holiday to celebrate the end of life with cancer and our new beginning. And on that holiday, I felt very ill. I struggled to breathe. I couldn't, I literally couldn't lie down. For a lot of sort of denying there was anything wrong, ended up in A&E. From A&E, ended up in cardiac intensive care and was diagnosed with acute heart failure and was told I would, I would probably die within 24 hours and that my family should consider coming over to say the final goodbyes. And we couldn't believe, how can life be so cruel? How can we get through cancer to now be told I'm going to die from heart failure? I don't know who or what saved me, but I, you know, I definitely believe that I've got some angels up there who keep pulling me through. We're stuck in Vancouver. I can't fly to England because my heart's too weak. And in those moments, Ina messaged me just to say, oh, by the way, I've seen everything you posted on surrogacy forums and I'd love to get to know you more. And, da, da, da. and I remember texting her going, oh, yeah, I'm just on holiday. I didn't tell her like I was in this hospital ward. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you when I'm back, maybe. And then after a while, I was like, look, I'm really ill. I don't know what's going to happen. And then she was like, oh, you're going to be fine. You'll be fine. You're going to see some sights and you'll be back. I've got every faith. And when you're back, let's meet up. And I think what she didn't realise is she gave me so much hope. When I might have been losing hope, this complete stranger was just telling me that I was going to be all right and that I was going to come back. And she gave me everything to live for because she was potentially going to make me a mum. So, you know, we came back and was talking to Ina and we we just kept chatting and you know I think it was really bizarre because I'd had an awakening that's the only thing I can call it in in the hospital room in Vancouver that I wouldn't die and you know that I had a life to live and no matter what people were telling me I was like I'm still going to be a mum like I, I I know it in my heart of hearts I know it so I'm going to pursue this conversation with this incredible woman I'm going to get out of this wheelchair and I'm going to I'm going to get back on my feet. And I did, you know, the, um, my heart failure was in 2016. By 2017, I, you know, I had good level of fitness, so, you know, I'd rehabbed myself and my cardiologist had essentially saved my life. Um, and we were doing really well. And the, the work that I put in to look after my heart was immense and, and to get it ticking again. And, you know, I'm sure there's some divine source of energy that is keeping me here. There was a lot of blood, sweat and tears from my end as well to get back onto this path to motherhood. There is no doubt in my mind that you are an incredibly determined, hardworking woman that does not take no for an answer, not to cancer, not to heart disease, not to fertility. <laughs> You've just said, no, absolutely not. I'm going to be a mum. So your first surrogacy experience was with Amala, your daughter, and obviously you have a genetic relatedness there, which is amazing. And then your second surrogacy experience, because of all the health issues you had, you actually ended up doing donor egg conception and surrogacy, which I just think is an incredible feat of science and humanity and love. Could you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. We went through Amala's pregnancy and, and we didn't have any embryos left to that transfer. But actually, that put massive pressure on Ina when she was in her two-week wait because she knew there wasn't any embryos left. So she was like, this one has to stick. Um, fortunately, she did. And, and, you know, we brought Amala into the world in 2018. But I think my husband and I immediately knew we'd wanted more than one child. 
we're Indian and, you know, Indian families are generally big families. We're so close to our cousins. I'd never really visioned a family with one child. And I know that sounds selfish or ridiculous as someone who's been through infertility, like be grateful with what you've got. But we definitely both wanted more than one. To have the second child, we, we had to find a second surrogate, which was quite complex in itself. There was a lot of guilt. You know, when I went back on the forum saying I want a sibling journey, I, was, I felt so guilty for taking the surrogate away from someone who didn't even have a single child. That was really difficult to navigate. Um, but you know, I wanted to live out my story. You know, I just had to do what I had to do. We had a second surrogate. Laura and we also had to find an egg donor when it came to egg donation we had looked at the UK you know some of the banks in the UK and we were told every time that South Asian donors are very hard to come by and we could be waiting years to find a South Asian donor and I guess I'd always had this vision that my family would look the same I'd just been raised in a community where everyone looks like their parents and the same skin color and the same hair color and so it's really important that I have a donor who's got the same skin color and hair color as me so I had to cast the net a bit wider and in doing that I'd had a conversation with someone in the surrogacy community about egg donation and I'd sort of talked about how I was worried about the connection I would have given that I wasn't carrying the baby inside of me so I wasn't just losing genetics I was losing pregnancy and I was worried how I would feel about having a blended family and would I love Amala more? Like those were all genuine fears. And in these conversations I was having, one surrogate said to me, oh, have you thought about known donation? And I was like, what is that? And so, you know, she talked about it. such and such is looking into it in Cyprus and he's got this agency and they share profiles of people in their adult life and you get to meet them and stuff. And I didn't realize it but that was what I was looking for I was looking for connection much in the same way I'm connected to my surrogates and my surrogates know who my children are I kind of wanted a form of connection to my egg donor and it also meant that going through this route meant that there was a pool the agency I was working with the egg donor agency was from South Africa and they had um, Indian donors on their books so it meant that I could get the donor I was looking for as well as the connection I was looking for. So the triplets were, honestly, the air miles travelled to create them. Um, I probably need to plant a lot of trees. But basically, we flew from the UK to Cyprus. Our egg donor flew from South Africa to Cyprus. We created embryos, put them on ice. We met our donor, which was the most incredible experience. I didn't, you know, we were told we'd have 10 minutes to have a chat with her. And we ended up talking for hours, spending the next day together and forming, you know, a really beautiful relationship with her and that's not everyone's experience it just happened to be mine we don't have day-to-day contact with her but when the boys were born I got a message to her through the agency and the agency sent a message back and it was just beautiful and it's something I have every intention of showing my boys when they're old enough like this is the lady who gave you life that journey was really really quite enormous and again something that you know as a South Asian girl I've not seen or heard anyone talk about it or you know do it in that way and I was like well if I talk about it I might help someone else do it so so I've really shared the boy's story and I think the thing that makes me laugh and you know you know the universe works in mysterious ways is that you know my husband is Indian and he's brown skin brown eyes and my donor was Indian brown hair black skin brown eyes and our triplets are white skinned blue eyes ashy hair you know you just cannot predict it and like they were born and I started going back to A-level biology and I'm like, well, hold on, how do genetics work to get blue eyes? Both parents have to have a recessive allele and I'm like, going to Sati, where was the blue eyes from? And you couldn't have scripted it, but the fact that they look the way they look actually reminds me every single day of 
how wanted they were. I always say on International Women's Day, when it comes up, that surrogacy and egg donation are the most powerful expressions of women supporting women. Without my surrogates, without my donor, and without me, none of these children would be alive. And for years, I would beat myself up about being someone who was not capable of being pregnant or not capable of having a child in the conventional way. And I think as intended mothers, sometimes society looks down on us a little bit. You know, we're like surrogates are on a pedestal because they do this amazing act of, you know, giving us a child and growing a child, which is true. But to sacrifice pregnancy and to sacrifice that connection to your child from, you know, cells to fetus to baby, that's immense. And that strength isn't always recognised. And I think I've now realised that my children wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me and the work I put into bringing them to life. And we all had equal role to play, you know. Some some roles were physical, but some roles were sheer grit, determination. All of them were needed. Very loved children in this household. Very loved. You're an incredible woman and you've done incredible things. And one of those annoying people, when someone wants to give up, I'm like that person. What are you talking about? Keep going, keep going. But thank goodness you have, because you've now got the intended parent, which is your your support platform. And it's a really, really, really important space for everybody. We will put all links in the show notes. I am very, very grateful for your time and really thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Maria, I found her story just to be overwhelming. An incredible life an incredible story. I agree. And I think the thing that comes through is her absolute resilience and determination and the number of times she had to self-advocate in potentially life-threatening situations. It wasn't just the fertility, it was the cancer. And time and time again, she had to absolutely fight her corner. And I think the thing that came through for me was she is such an intelligent dedicated, committed woman who really stuck up for herself. And thank goodness she did. Very impressive woman. What if she just complied with that GP and went away for two months? Heaven knows where we'd be now. And because she didn't, a couple of things have happened. Obviously, recognise that she had her cancer. She also has four, count them, four new lives in the world. And that's all because she was unwilling to capitulate to someone else's point of view. She stood her ground. The other thing is her children, Karina's children, are just absolutely beautiful. And she's got pictures of the triplets when they were born with their surrogate. She's got pictures of her eldest and they're just absolutely beautiful. And I think not only did her determination, resilience and self-advocating help her and her family, she's also helped so many other families. So she's got all of the work she's doing around um, culture, which is incredibly important. And the work that she's doing for the surrogacy community is massively important. So she's just helped so, so many people. Thank goodness for Karina, I say. She's done an incredible job. The intended parent. Check it out. So, Maria, what will we be talking about next week? Next week, I am delighted to be speaking to David O'Rourke, who is the founder of the fantastic platform that is Pro Fertility. And he's going to talk us through all of the incredible work they do. And I will be chatting about how I'm involved with all of that work. And it really is something to tune into and not to miss. So tune in next week to hear from David. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week. And please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and they may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. 
We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.